Good morning, everybody. And thank you, Lois. I'm going to assume that maybe you're watching this uh, uh, over the airwaves. We appreciate that, and we miss uh, having you here. Well, today we are continuing our study in that section of the Old Testament that some people call the, the Book of Emmanuel. It's part of the prophecies of uh, Isaiah the prophet, specifically chapters 7 through 11. So today we're going to look at the opening of chapter 9. Now, uh, we remind ourselves that uh, these words were spoken in a particular time and place. And uh, we looked at this map last week and probably the week before. But uh, this is the stage for the verses we're going to look at again today. So uh, the prophecy is given by Isaiah in the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem, uh, directed largely at uh, King Ahaz. And the concern of that day is the political situation. Seems like politics is always heavy on people's minds, right? So, uh, the political situation is that the Assyrian Empire is pressing down on all these small countries uh, that stand between it and Egypt in that land bridge. And particularly, their, uh, their pressure is on Damascus and on Israel, the northern ten tribes. And uh, in a time that is perceived as a time of weakness for Assyria, it really wasn't, but that's the way it was perceived, uh, Damascus and Israel decide that they are going to rebel. They're going to stop paying their taxes. They're going to resist the Assyrians. And they want Judah to join in. But uh, Ahaz thinks that that is not a good idea. He thinks that there's an overwhelming power in Assyria, so he resists, and the alliance of Israel and Damascus decide that they're going to invade and depose Ahaz, put a king in who's favorable to their policies and will be part of the, the alliance of rebellion. And... Uh, Isaiah's word to Ahaz is, uh, stay calm, stand firm, uh, because the Assyrians are going to win. Your intuition is right here. They're going to come. They're going to destroy those northern two alliances, or that one alliance. And uh, you just need to stand firm and trust the Lord. The problem is that Ahaz isn't isn't content to trust the Lord. What he trusts is his own political maneuverings, and so he invites the Assyrians down, saying, I'm faithful here, uh, I will give you support, including uh, money, <laughs> and uh, you come down and get rid of these folks for me. And Isaiah says, that's a bad move because uh, you're going to get hurt doing that. You just need to trust the Lord. So that's where we were uh, last week. Uh, the word is, uh, the plunder of Samaria and the wealth of Damascus will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So, 
Let's pick up in chapter 9, and we'll call that Light in the Darkness. And this is just one of the most beautiful themes that you can ever contemplate, but especially at the time of Advent. Light shining in the darkness, and, and to some extent we're celebrating that even when people put lights out on their houses, right? That's, that's part of what's behind that, is this idea of light coming. You can see, as we read here, that most of the section 9, 1 to 7, uh, except for verse 1, the rest of it is all poetry, which is just typical of the prophets. You have to tell yourself you're reading poetry. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All right, now, once again, this has very specific focus. Uh, If you look at verse 1, the introduction to the passage, there are actually five geographic markers here. It's very interesting that when Isaiah gives this, the... uh, the detail geographically is uh, almost over the top. And uh, I've been thinking this week, why would that be? Uh, but, But I suspect part of it has to do with the idea that when the light comes, Isaiah doesn't want, and God doesn't want, anyone who is really looking for it to miss it. So there's a very specific focus as to where this light is going to appear. And, uh, and let's, take, let's take a minute to, uh, or maybe two minutes, <laughs> to uh, look at that because I think it's important. So let's start with this map. This is the largest of uh, three maps that we want to look at. And uh, you can see this is the whole Middle Eastern area here. Assyria is up in this area, 
to the north and east. And Egypt is off the map this way to the, uh, to the southwest. If you're going to travel from that major center of ancient civilization, which is the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, which, which is where Assyria is at this point, and if you're going to travel to the, the other ancient center of civilization, which is Egypt, how are you going to get there? Well, you're not going to go through this area, which is kind of the direct route. Why? Because it's all desert, and it's not convenient for travel. So what you're going to do is take one of two major international routes either I-80 or I-76, right? Uh, so uh, the one is in red on this map, and it's called the King's Highway. So it comes from Assyria uh, down past the mountains of Lebanon and then turns south and, and goes south on the east side of the Jordan. The Jordan runs from uh, Mount Hermon up here to uh, the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, and then down the Rift Valley and ends at the Dead Sea. So the King's Highway will take you down on the east side, down to the head of the Red Sea, and then uh, due west to Egypt. King's Highway. Now, there's an alternative route. The alternative route is that somewhere up in the area of the mountains of Lebanon, you can peel off to the west and cross the Jordan River above the, the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, and follow down southward, cross the, the Valley of Jezreel. We talked about that in our Hosea study. And go over the, the Carmel Ridge and hit the seacoast and follow that around. So two primary ways. One is the King's Highway. The other is what? It's called the way of the sea. And that's what's referred to in verse 1, the way of the sea. Now, the way of the sea obviously covers a large amount of territory. So that's, that's part of the description, but it's not precise enough. So we have to precise it some more. Where is this light going to turn up? Well, uh, another reference in verse 1 is Galilee of the Gentiles. So here is uh, the map on the left in a, in a close-up showing the Sea of Galilee, uh, the Jordan River coming down from Mount Hermon and flowing south to the Dead Sea, which is off the map. This area west of the Jordan down to the Jezreel Valley is Galilee. And the northern area of Galilee is even called Galilee of the Gentiles. <clears throat> Why? Because it was an area that was pulled back and forth. Sometimes it was clearly belonging to Israel. Uh, other times it belonged to other nations. And there was a mixed people there many of them outsiders, i.e. Gentiles, right? So this is an area that wasn't thought of very highly by the, 
the more purest-minded Jews, say, down in Jerusalem, right? Uh, uh, big discussion in Jesus' day, you know, who, who was Jesus? And Nicodemus says to the other Pharisees, well, you know, shouldn't you hear somebody out before you reject what they say? And, and they say, what are you talking about? Don't, don't you know that no prophet arises from Galilee, right? So it's not well thought of. It's the, it's the other side of the track, so to speak. But now we've got a couple markers intersecting because if you see from this map, the way of the sea is going to cross the Jordan somewhere in this area north of Galilee and come down past Capernaum and cross the valley and, and so forth. Galilee, the way of the sea, but then it mentions two names. The tribe of Zebulun and the tribe of Naphtali. Two of the twelve tribes of Israel who have certain areas that they were given when Joshua led the people into the land. So let's take a look at that. Sorry, this isn't a real sharp map, but you can get the idea. So here's the Sea of Galilee again, or the Sea of Kinnereth, as it's called sometimes. And uh, the red is the way of the sea, cutting across. Now notice the two tribes that are mentioned in verse 1, Zebulun and Naphtali. When the Assyrians invade, where are they going to come from? Assyria, right? What route are they going to take? Well, they're not going to take the king's highway. They're going to branch off and take the way of the sea. So the invasion route is right down here and the first people to bear the brunt of that will be the people of Naphtali. And with that, you can see how Zebulun gets caught up in that as well. Those are the two places mentioned. So, <clears throat> in this area, you can see why Isaiah says, the people who dwell in darkness... There will be no more gloom for them. But it, it's a gloomy place, right? especially if you are living in the 8th century <clears throat> and with Isaiah anticipating, as these people no doubt did. I mean, they, they didn't live in ignorance, right? They knew things were tense. They knew that the Assyrians were going to make a push. Where are they going to push first? Where is the brutality going to strike first? Naphtali, Galilee, the way of the sea, that's, that's their access point. Now what you obviously see on this map too though, this, this poem, this prophecy that says light is going to dawn in that place of darkness, you observe that in Zebulun's territory is the town of Nazareth. 
It's the town where Jesus grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grows up in Nazareth. And you notice that when his official preaching ministry begins, he relocates. Where does he relocate to? He relocates to Capernaum right at the north end of the sea. The people who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. There will be no more gloom for those in Galilee of the Gentiles, for those in Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea. Beyond the Jordan, that's the other one, and that's the one that's least clear, I think, because obviously beyond the Jordan depends which side of the Jordan you're on. huh? Uh, so, but, but, but the Jordan goes right through there. So it's the same general area. For that area, light is going to come. There will be no more gloom. Darkness and light are powerful metaphors, aren't they? Symbols. And, uh, and so they are in Scripture as well. Gloom. <clears throat> we understand the metaphor of that. How many of you in this last week had periods of time when you felt gloomy? When you sensed darkness around you or darkness in your head darkness in your heart you see that the, the metaphor isn't is just that it's not necessarily literal but it's a powerful figure of what happens to us there are lots of people who feel gloomy <clears throat> because we've got our own reasons to feel that way especially at this juncture of our history with this crazy pandemic and all the rest, and the politics and all the rest. <laughs> people, people feel dark. They feel gloomy. <clears throat> Darkness, as a metaphor, brings all kinds of ideas, doesn't it? Suggests oppression. <clears throat> That's certainly a significant part of what the Israelites in Naphtali are going to experience. The Assyrians are going to be brutal on them. So oppression is one thing that is in view there. Uh, Isaiah says, uh, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. How about with that powerlessness, <clears throat> feeling like your life is out of control, like there are, <clears throat> there are all sorts of other people and other forces that are determining what you do. <clears throat> and, and that's troubling for people. You know, whether it's, uh, whether it's that you, you need to wear masks, <clears throat> whether the uh, governor says that certain things can or can't be opened, uh, this, this makes people feel powerless in their decision-making. <clears throat> Fear. 
Wow. A lot of people are afraid of the future. <clears throat> afraid, with some good reason, of, the, uh, of this virus. But you know what? <clears throat> the things that we're afraid of, it's, it seems to me that they're very little compared to what people in other places of the world today or historically they faced, right? I mean, think if you are in this northern area of Galilee and the Assyrians are coming, 27,000 people are going to go into exile, right? And that's beyond all the people that will be killed, <coughs> the women that will be raped, the cities that will be sacked and destroyed. That's, that's real stuff to fear. How about confusion? That's a part of darkness and gloom too, isn't it? How do I think about things? <clears throat> What's really true? What is rumor? How should I act? And then despair. The loss of hope. Significant factor in confronting the darkness. Many <clears throat> people, some of them Christians, are living with a sense of despair. But what this says is, this prophecy says, for people who are facing that situation in the 8th century B.C., there will be no more gloom. Why? Because a light has dawned. And light's another one of those powerful uh, metaphors. Light has come. What does that mean? Well, uh, it certainly has in view freedom. The door's open. The birds have flown. They're not confined anymore. There is freedom. The yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor has been shattered. There's freedom. With that comes joy, the exuberance of knowing that the darkness is past. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. And in an agricultural society, which we're not anymore, of course, harvest is... The, a good harvest is the culmination of a whole year of expectation, isn't it? So you rejoice in that. As people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice, when they win a great battle, there is exuberance. And, and out of that comes peace which we've said before, this idea of the Old Testament shalom is one of wholeness, well-being, prosperity, health, and safety. All those things come together in the idea of 
good human flourishing? What makes for a full human life? The light that is going to shine in Galilee is going to produce these things. And it'll be, Isaiah says, like the day of Gideon's victory over Midian. Did you pick that up in verse 4? For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke. Uh, Isaiah apparently liked to reflect on that story of Gideon in Judges 6 through 8 because he mentions it again a couple chapters later. The day when Gideon, with his small band of 300, destroys the Midianite invaders who have been coming back yearly at the time of harvest. (laughs) They took the harvest for themselves. And uh, God raises up Gideon. And the defeat is so complete that we're told that the land had peace for 40 years. Well, as people rejoiced in Gideon's victory, uh, so there will come a... By the way, Midian's defeat, if you think of that map, it it was in the area of Issachar, which is... I mean, you can see that... Jezreel Valley from Nazareth. It's that close. So this this is all imagery from that same area. A light has dawned. Well, what is this light? What's to be expected? It's that a son is going to be born. Now, uh, chapter 7, chapter 8 have talked about the son, the Emmanuel child, and Maher Shalal Hashbaz, a child to be born during Isaiah's time, during the time of the Assyrian threat. But this son looks beyond that. The son who is given is going to be the heir to David's throne, the Messiah. This, this is a messianic text. Christians have always understood it that way, and in fact, uh, uh, Jewish uh, commentators have understood it that way as well. Because it's very explicit in verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is This is the promise that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was made to David. That his heirs would not be cut off the way Saul's heirs were cut off. But rather that God was establishing an eternal covenant, an everlasting covenant with David. That his throne would endure. So there's a son who is coming. And he apparently is connected with this light that will shine in Galilee. And remember, the heirs of David are focused in Jerusalem, far to the south of us. And the prophet Micah tells us that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So you can see how this would be a kind of an ongoing puzzle to people. What's the Galilee discussion here? 
connected with the discussion of the Messiah, the prophecy of his coming. Well, that's going to that's gonna unfold historically. Isaiah doesn't know that, right? The people don't know that. He will be an extraordinary son of David. In fact, he will be called, or uh, I think the translation is probably better understood, God will call him the Messiah. Four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, and Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. This reminds me of uh, a section in the writings of Dallas Willard where he talks about Jesus as the smartest man who ever lived. And he says, uh, most people don't think of Jesus that way, even most Christians. They think of Jesus as uh, kind, gentle, loving, peaceful, but, but they don't think of him as smart. And, uh, and that leads Dallas into a longer discussion of this, that Jesus is, after all, the one through whom God creates the worlds. And you need to be pretty smart to do that. Uh, he is the one through whom God creates all of life, including us. You need to be smart to do that, and so to think of Jesus as the wonderful counselor is <clears throat> to think of him as the one who gives us guidance as to how we ought to live, and he gives it rightly. He really does know how we ought to live. He counsels us wisely, and as believers, we need to be people who receive that wisdom, who seek it from him. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Uh, that, that certainly ties back into that Emmanuel discussion we had, doesn't it? God with us. In the strongest sense that we understand that, that in the presence of this Son, God is now here. Again, I doubt that that's how Isaiah or the people of his day understood it because, because even in the Gospels, the disciples are still trying to get their head around who is this one who has come to us. But nonetheless, already eight centuries before Jesus, these profoundly powerful ideas are circulating about the son who is coming, who will be David's heir. <clears throat> Sometimes it's translated eternal father or father of eternity. I really like this rendering, the father of the future. Father is the imagery of an initiator, right? 
the one who, who initiates the family, if you will. The son who's coming, David's heir, is going to be father of the future. The question, where is history going? That's the question that he answers. Right? What is next? We don't know, but he knows. Because he is the father of the future. The book of Revelation describes him as Alpha and Omega. Remember that? The beginning and the ending. And he is the Prince of Peace. The coming of light suggests, among other things, the coming of peace, of wholeness. And he is the Prince of Peace, Shar Shalom. Well, for the third Sunday of Advent, friends, that's, uh, that's our message. <laughs> a son is coming, a message that was sent to God's people in the midst of a profound darkness and gloom, a time of hopelessness and despair. But the prophet brings a message from the Lord that darkness does not have the final word. The light is more powerful. Prophet Malachi will later say, to you that look for it, the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in its wings. To you that look for it. In Isaiah's day, most people weren't looking. They weren't listening. We talked about the remnant, huh? It's a small group that looks and sees and anticipates. And so the challenge to my heart, and I suspect to yours, is uh, this challenge of what we're going to look for. What is our hope fixed on? Some people have their hope fixed on the rapid development of a vaccine, which may, may happen. I hope it does. But my hope in the larger sense is not fixed on that. See, it's possible that I can contract the virus before the vaccine gets deployed, and I might not be here to benefit from it. So that's not what I'm pinning my hopes on. In the gloom of the present, or the gloom that may be beyond the present. <laughs> what is your hope fixed on? To that small group of disciples and people who were listening, Isaiah said... There will be no more gloom. Actually, he said, there is no more gloom, which is typical of the prophets. They talk about things that are future as if they've already happened because they're so sure that God is going to fulfill his word. So there is no more gloom because God is going to act. 
And he is going to bring the one who is Lord of the future and the Prince of Peace. And in his day, humanity will flourish. And we will flourish. Because a son has been given. We have the advantage of history. We know how it took place in Galilee, which those people wouldn't have had a clue about. We see that. And we still await, of course, the fullness of the hope when the Son will return again. But the coming the first time and the way we see this unfolding gives assurance and confidence to us that God is going to fulfill his word. And so we are people of hope. We're not people who live in gloom and darkness because we see that the light is already shining. This is the testimony, says John, that light has come into the world. And so it has. And so you and I live, or can live, with hope, with confidence, and with joy because of what God is doing. We're going to celebrate communion this day. And uh, David, I think you're going to lead us in that. So will you come up and lead us through that good exercise? some elements, and if not, hopefully you have the seldom prophesied but now available self-contained communion element kit, so we'll take advantage of both this morning. You know, as we welcome those of us here and those of us afar to the Lord's table, this holy sacrament is vitally important. What's even more important is our relationship with Jesus Christ and a deepening understanding of who he is, perfectly human, perfectly divine, this light who has come. That Christmas long ago that we'll remember as we celebrate shortly, our Messiah King didn't arrive on the scene with an invasion. He arrived with an invitation. He didn't just come to reconcile me and you, although I and you certainly need to be restored. But he came to reconcile the world, that plan that, that Dave has shared with us, God's plan for the world. He came to reconcile the world to himself. And as we gather to remember who this Jesus is and what he's done and is doing, we pause, we retell the story together with these symbols of body and blood, bread and wine, crackers and juice. Our Lord instructs us to draw close to him by sharing in the sacred and he desires us to keep his sacrifice of love clearly before us. We join believers of every Christian tradition all around the world, and we share this communion meal. Paul asked the believers in Corinth, and he asked us the same question. Isn't the cup of blessing which we bless a participation in the blood of Christ? And isn't the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? First Corinthians. 
And we remember that only Jesus could make that way back to the Father for us. We are his body, his church. We've been restored. We're blessed. And we seek to live our lives in a manner that reflects God's dream for his world. That God is with us as we join him in mission. Let's take a moment, quiet our hearts and minds. Would you spend a few moments in prayerful conversation with this God who seeks to restore us? And then I'll close us in prayer.